Tuesday morning to you, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon Podcast. Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on April 13th of 2014, under the headline, Beaver Crick Bomber, Give Me One Million Dollars or the Lights Go Out. Here we go. On a sunny late afternoon in the fall of 1974, in a remote woodsy area near the base of Mount Hood, five fiery explosions rattled window panes in a few farmhouses along Highway 26 near the community of Brightwood. It was immediately clear what the coordinated blasts had been, an attempt to take down the power grid. The explosive charges had been set at the bases of five of the giant steel towers that carry high-voltage electricity generated at Bonneville and other dams on the Columbia River. When the smoke cleared, three of the five targeted towers were down, and two of the explosions and subsequent sparking of broken wires had touched off small forest fires. These were quickly brought under control, and power was rerouted around the damaged lines, and the Bonneville Power Administration officials started scratching their heads. Who was bombing their power lines? And why? One thing they knew for sure, whoever was doing this was persistent and serious. Three weeks earlier, a helicopter on line patrol had found three heavily damaged towers near Maupin, apparently also targeted with dynamite. This wasn't kids having fun. This bomber was on a campaign. And if there were any lingering doubts about that, they vanished the next day when three more towers went down near the Dalles. But BPA officials still didn't know why. They hadn't long to wait, though. The answer to that question arrived two days later in the form of a letter sent to the FBI. Quote, The extent of damages resulting from the demolition of five of your power line towers Wednesday night is incidental, the letter stated tersely. Our primary objective was to impress upon any potential non-believers that we mean business. We have the men and the equipment to keep as many towers down as is necessary to force compliance with our demands. Those demands were essentially one million dollars, and failure to pony up would, the extortionist added, lead to much more than a million dollars in damage to other power towers and to companies that depended on electricity grid for operations. Quote, if you are entertaining any illusions of apprehending our men, forget it, the letter continued. An attempt will lead to, your delivery men will be killed, we will black out the entire Portland area and vicinity, or both. The letter was signed by J. Hawker, an apparent reference to the J. Hawkers of pre-Civil War Kansas. Mr. Hawker claimed membership in something called the RVOVN, which apparently stood for Reorganized Veterans of Vietnam. Hawker also wrote that the million dollars was not supposed to be seen as an ordinary extortion attempt, but rather as a demand for, quote, just compensation from the government for Vietnam veterans. At the urging of the FBI, the BPA officials immediately and staunchly refused to give Hawker a nickel. But the company did immediately offer a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of whoever was responsible for the blowings up. And, of course, the BPA stepped up patrols of its towers. 
The problem was those towers ran for thousands of miles across the most remote parts of the state. Hawker was attaching his charges to the towers using silver duct tape, so they were almost invisible until one got quite close, meaning helicopters were useless as patrol vehicles. Catching Hawker planting a charge would be a one-in-a-million shot, no matter how many law enforcement patrols went out, and if they did find him, he would probably be armed and dangerous. All they could really do was wait for him to make a mistake. So the city of Portland hurried to dust off its old gas turbine backup generators, and everyone waited for the bomber to make his next move. A week later, Jay Hawker seems to have gotten impatient. He released another letter in which he threatened to start a forest fire in the Bull Run watershed, apparently intending to damage the city's drinking water supply unless that million bucks were speedily forked over. This might have worked okay had not the skies opened up after he mailed the letter. By the time Hawker's threat to light Bull Run on fire arrived at City Hall, a full half inch of rain had fallen on Bull Run. Meanwhile, the FBI had received yet another letter from Jay Hawker the fourth of a total of six he would send out. This letter included instructions for communicating with him through CB radio transmissions on Channel 9 in Morse code. In an attempt to avoid having his voice identified, Hawker would use a duck call to painstakingly honk out his messages, and the FBI would respond in plain voice. The FBI wouldn't say, but they were probably pretending to negotiate delivery of the million-dollar ransom. In any case, it was this duck-quacking protocol that furnished the FBI with its big break in the case. While monitoring the CB channel for the distinctive sound of hawkers, waterfowl honks, an FBI agent just happened to hear a bunch of them while driving behind a blue-and-gray 1968 Plymouth in southeast Portland. The driver of the Plymouth had his elbow out the window and a walkie-talkie in his hand. Then, as the agent watched, a woman in the passenger seat turned, saw his official-looking car, and quickly turned to the driver, who instantly threw the radio down on the seat beside him. Out of the two million people in range of the agent's CB radio, what were the chances that the one guy he was looking for was this guy in front of him? Actually, the chances were excellent. Agents had been communicating with Hawker for over a week. Over that time, they had triangulated his CB signal to a small quadrant of southeast Portland and identified him as a mobile unit. When Hawker instructed the agents to contact him via CB radio at 1 p.m. that day, they flooded the neighborhood with FBI agents. Hawker hadn't stood a chance. The agent pulled the car over and introduced himself to the couple driving it. David and Sheila Heesh, both 34 years old. They were a ways from home. They lived in Beaver Creek, a woodsy rural hamlet about halfway between Oregon City and Molala. The radio, when the agent picked it up, was set on Channel 9. There was a duck call on the floorboard. And when the agent honked on it, it sure sounded familiar. David and Sheila were utterly busted. And once the cops got a warrant to search their home, they found all the evidence they needed. They had found Jay Hawker. And David didn't bother to deny it, entering a guilty plea along with a full explanation to the public. He said he didn't want people worrying that there might still be dynamite out there. And on November 16, 1974, exactly one month after the BPA tower blasts that started it all, David Heesh, the Beaver Creek bomber, was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Sheila drew 10 years as an accessory. Key sources in this story have included the Portland, Oregonian archives from October 17th through December 19th, 1974, and the FBI's website at fbi.gov. 
Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are Offbeat Oregon history-type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.